0: Welcome to the Lodge Real Estate Home Truths podcast. Join us as we speak the truth about home ownership, the housing market, and the place we call home, Hamilton. Come on in and make yourself comfortable.
1: Well, thanks for listening to Home Truths. I'm your host, Megan Smith, Residential and Lifestyle Real Estate Agent Consultant at Lodge Real Estate. Buying your first home can be both an exciting and a daunting time, whether you're young or in fact young at heart. And with constant media hype about the ups and downs of the property market, is it even still achievable? Well, spoiler alert, yes, it is. And today I'm joined by experts who work with first time home buyers on a daily basis Jordan Cameron from Total Mortgages and our own Paul Conway from Lodge. They're going to share some tips and tricks to help you get on the property ladder as a first time home buyer and uncover some home truths you might not have heard elsewhere. Welcome, guys, and thanks for coming along today.
0: Thanks for having us. Thank you, Megan.
1: So, first off, I have to offer my congratulations to you, Jordan, ranked sixth best mortgage advisor in the country and top outside Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch. You must be doing something right.
0: Thanks, Megan. Yeah, we had uh, quite a big year this year, so it's quite exciting for us.
1: Brilliant. And Paul, any awards that we should mention for you?
2: I have received a bravery award and a uh, National Police Medal, but does that count? Sounds all right
1: well, let's not overshadow Jordan's achievements here this afternoon. So thank you for that, Paul. That was unexpected. Um, Now, before we launch into it, let's attend to our regular feature, Two Truths and a Lie. I'll get each of you to share three statements, and at the end of the podcast, we'll uncover which is, in fact, fact and which is fiction. So, Paul, Jordan?
0: Yeah, I'll go first. So, um, number one, it is possible to purchase your first home without any savings at all. Number two, you can withdraw your KiwiSaver a second time if you're in the same position as a first-home buyer. And number three, you have to repay all of your debt before you apply for a first-home loan. Nice, thank you. And Paul?
2: Yes, my two truths and a lie for first-home buyers. If you engage a real estate agent as the buyer, you need to pay them. Most real estate agents are honest. If you make an offer on a home, you are committed to buying that home.
1: Brilliant. Thank you. Nice work, guys. They're actually going to be really hard to pick at the end of the podcast. So, Paul, if I'm a first time home buyer, how do I start navigating buying my first home? What's the first step look like?
2: I would actually find a real estate agent that I like and trust and get them to do a lot of the legwork for me. And rather than rushing around open homes on a Saturday or Sunday, I'd probably get that agent to arrange some private viewings for me during the week. I can look at the house on my own in comfort without other people rushing around and then listen to their advice on what's selling and what's not selling in the um, local area.
1: So it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think sometimes there's a little bit of confusion around an agent or a buying specialist. So if, if people are thinking about working with someone specifically to help them buy a place, so we're talking about really, I guess, here about a buyer specialist, how does that work?
2: Were you talking the legal side or?
1: So I guess for our listeners this afternoon is, you know, how do they get what's commonly referred to, I guess, as a buyer's agent? How does that work? Who pays? What's the process?
2: Well, there are very little actual buyer's agents in the market. I mean, to be a buyer's agent, you actually need to get paid by the buyer. And that just doesn't really happen. So it is cognizant to bear in mind that at all times the vendor is paying the fee, When they sell their house to both the person who brings the buyer and the person who puts the property on the market. But if you're working with a real estate agent, and as I said, you have to find one that you like and trust, and they will do the right thing by you. Most agents in town, you know, they have a good moral compass and they just want to help someone actually find their first home.
1: And so, why would you use specifically maybe a buyer specialist rather than attending open homes or doing all the legwork yourself?
2: The way that getting paid works, and that's what at the end of the day everyone wants to receive for their work is to get paid, is that if someone is helping you buy a house, they get paid when you buy a house. So if you pick someone and they take you to 10, 20 houses, doesn't matter which one you buy, they will eventually get paid when you buy one of those 20 houses.
1: But they're not getting paid by the people that are viewing, right? The no, they're not getting paid buyers. by
2: the buyers. They'll eventually get paid their share by the vendors. So they actually won't put pressure on you to buy a particular house, but rather they will just help you find the house that best suits you. Whereas you just go to 20 different open homes, every one of those 20 agents will only get paid if you buy the house that they're at that open home for. So, of course, their interest is more in you buying that one particular house.
1: Right okay well thank you for clarifying that and you know how can first time home buyers get the best from their agent
2: well open communication is usually the best as i say like they usually have a general interest in helping and they'd like to get paid so they want to know what you you like and don't like about homes and if you don't like a particular area or there's a particular style of house you don't like then let them know but also on the other side I wouldn't I would listen to some of their advice and suggestions too because there is a lot of times people will tell us that they don't want to buy a house in a certain area and then they end up buying one in that area. Right. Yeah, just because the perfect house has come along.
1: Okay, well, thank you for that. And it's interesting, I I totally agree with that because often I will ask people, you know, do you have areas that you prefer? And they'll give me a list of the preferences and then rule out two suburbs in particular, one which I actually live in. And I, I often find that incredible because we know every suburb has good and perhaps less good aspects to it. And of course, before you get too deep into finding a property, it's always a good idea to know how much you can afford to spend. And that's actually where you come in. Award-winning Jordan, what does a mortgage advisor do, and how do they work with buyers and lenders? So, uh, mortgage
0: advisors um, generally work as like a personal banker, but for multiple banks. So we have accreditations with all of the major banks, uh, apart from Kiwi Bank. We don't have Kiwi Bank at the moment. Uh, I'm still working on that. And essentially we can, you know, do an assessment and tell a potential borrower how much they can borrow at each bank and which bank has a better policy. All of the banks have um, different policies when it comes to overtime, border income and stuff like that. So uh, it is a lot to keep up with. But generally, you, you know, once you've got your thumb on the pulse, your <laughs> finger on the pulse, you know, you know straight away, um, which bank's going to be the best fit for that client. So if they you go know, going direct to that bank, they're only going to be selling them that one product. So, yeah, it, it gives the uh, the borrower a better overview and um, and then we can negotiate the interest rates and, and that we generally get offered the best rates up front because we put so much business through those banks anyway and lenders.
1: So, Jordan, I guess traditionally as Kiwis, you know, we've worked with our main provider or our main lender, in this case, a bank. Tell me how that works differently to working with a mortgage broker. Like, how, how would people approach you?
0: Yeah, people come from all sorts. We get a lot of um, referrals from all other clients. We work closely with real estate agents, a bit of marketing and stuff like that. Generally, once we, um, you know, have initial. Discussion with people, they're impressed with our services and, and they stick with us. We kind of give them an estimate of how much they can borrow and sort of just kick the whole process off from there.
1: Look, I've been really impressed. I've had people that have been, I've worked with, that have been turned down by their bank. And then, you know, I've referred them to you and the team at Total Mortgages, and a first time home has been possible for them. So, I mean, that's really exciting for those individuals. And it should seem obvious from what you've said, but why should potential first time home buyers engage, I guess, a mortgage advisor rather than just go directly to their bank or their current bank?
0: So I guess it's just comes down to personal preference. I mean, generally, there's no charge when you're using a mortgage advisor. Uh, you just want to check with the terms and conditions with that mortgage advisor.
2: I have a, a good hamburger analogy for this situation. It's here, at it, Paul. So if I want a hamburger and I go to McDonald's, I say, tell me the best hamburger, what are they going to tell me? It's the Big Mac. Something on the McDonald's menu. They're not going to tell me that the Carl Jr.'s Hawaiian burger is good or that the Burger Fuel burger is good or anything else. They're just going to strictly tell me what their product is and try and sell me that. Mm. So if I go to a bank and I go, what's the best mortgage for me, it's going to be one of their products. Right. Whereas if I go to the hamburger broker, they will go, hey, look, the Big Mac's good but you might be able to like the Hawaiian burger from Burger Fuel or you might like this. And that's why I always try and send my clients to a mortgage broker because they will find the best loan For them, regardless of the bank.
1: Oh, that's a great analogy, Paul. Thanks for sharing that. Jordan, there's a lot of media coverage about how hard it's been for first-time home buyers to secure finance, and particularly with the triple CFA, even though it's in its version two. What's your experience been over this year so far? And should people be worried about their Netflix subscription or perhaps slipping in that extra cappuccino, is that going to hurt their chances of getting a mortgage?
0: Uh, Not in my opinion. So I I think the whole triple CFA um, thing has been blown out of proportion the lenders have tightened up a little bit, you know, and they are like including gym memberships and Netflix subscriptions and stuff that we used to just put down as discretionary spending. And now that's getting um, included as like a, a default expense on top of the minimum. So it is lowering how much you can borrow a little bit, um, but you know, it's it's not killing the deal completely. Uh, so we actually wrote a blog on it end of last year, just with our sort of take on it. And I think to be honest. I think the media blew the whole thing out of proportion. It's there, you know, we've got to deal with it. just deal with it and move on. I think the biggest thing that was sort of harming the first home purchases was the reserve bank restrictions, the LVR restrictions, um, where the banks are only allowed to do 10% of their book of business with less than 20% deposits. Uh, So that's been the the main problem, which has probably been an issue since around November. Um, But it is starting to come back a little bit now. And then the first home loan um, with the, the caps being raised in that. That certainly helped um, first homeowners um, getting back into the market. So, um, you know, people that qualify for that, they can borrow 95%. That's and, a great insight. The, yeah.
1: Yeah. And just for our audience for clarity, can you clarify what the LVR is and what the triple CFA is? This may be new acronym language for our listeners.
0: LVR stands for loan to value ratio. So, that's basically a reverse of a deposit, or, you know, deposit equity. So, essentially, um, you know, if you've got a 10% deposit, you're at 90% LVR. So, the main banks out, outside of the first home loan, the smallest deposit you can do is, is 10%, which is a, you know, 90% LVR deal. On an owner-occupied property, the Reserve Bank wants you to be at 80%. Right. Um, so, they only let, you know, a 10% of... Business slip through in that space there. So the Triple CFA Act, Credit uh, Contracts and Consumer Finance Act. My understanding was that it was brought in to um, stop the loan sharks and the you know the small time finance companies ripping people off and, and giving them loans that they couldn't afford. The banks are major lenders. Um, they had to buy by this responsible lending act anyway. So that was always there in the background. Um, but now they're having to um, follow this, this law as well. It's made a little bit of a difference, but it's, it's more so in the paperwork and, you know, um, they need bank statements for this account and anything that's coming in, in and out where in the past they hadn't worried so much about those things.
1: Mm, okay, well, that's great, and I suppose everybody's wondering at the moment in terms of finance, what has actually been helping first-time home buyers obtain finance recently? What, how can they do it?
0: In terms of what deposits they need, or? I was thinking
1: around. Um, we've got some new avenues for first-time home buyers carrying a order.
0: Yep, yep. So um, obviously, the changes to the first home loan when the budget was announced, they removed the regional price caps. For the first home loan, so I think the Hamilton um, regional cap last year or, or start of this year was five hundred and twenty-five thousand. Mm. To be eligible for the ninety-five percent loan, you had to purchase under five hundred and twenty-five thousand. And as you're aware, you know there's there's not many houses around under that value really, at no. that time. So they removed the cap, so that's gone out the window. So there's actually no cap on how much you can purchase a property for under the first home loan scheme. Uh, there is an income cap, so. So, you know, if it's a couple, they need to be earning under 150000 for the last 12 months. Okay. And if it's a single applicant with no dependents, it's under 95000
1: Okay. And if
0: they have a single applicant with one or more dependents, it's one hundred and fifty as well.
1: Is that the same as HomeStart grants or is it, that something completely very, separate? It's very
0: similar. Mm. Um, so the Home Start grant has very similar criteria, but that does have the cap still on it. So the Home Start grant can um, go towards your deposit. So essentially, if you've been contributing to your KiwiSaver for three or more years and you meet all the other criteria, the government will give you three dollars to $5,000 for every year that you've paid into your, your KiwiSaver in total. And that does get doubled if it's a brand new property. So a single applicant can get up to 5000 for an existing property and up to 10000 for a, a new property.
1: Gosh, this is uh, really complex and I would hate to be a first-time home buyer trying to navigate this without the help of a mortgage advisor. I really would. So here's a question for both of you. We often picture first-time home buyers as younger, for instance, mid-20s, perhaps in the early 30s. Is that really the case or is first-time home ownership available to anyone?
0: I think so. Um, You know, people come through at all different um, stages of life. Most of the lenders try to impose a shorter loan term on if you're a little bit older. Generally, they do like it to be repaid by the time you turn 70. But uh, in saying that, if you have a clear exit strategy, sometimes they will look to provide you with a longer loan term.
1: What would be the oldest person you've helped into a first home?
0: We had a recent one that was fifty-five. Not sure that was the oldest, um, but just to
1: give you an idea. Yeah. That feels really young, Jordan, indeed. You'd agree with me on that too, Paul, I think. So, yes. Paul, what are your tips for identifying a great first home? And are, are there any property types our listers should stay away from?
2: Well, no, because owning a home is very much up to the individual. Like, what's that old saying? One person's trash is another person's treasure.
1: And so, what, what would people look for, though, in terms of maybe some things or features to avoid, perhaps?
2: Well, it all depends on your budget. I mean, I know when I bought my first home, it was almost falling down, but that's what you could afford.
1: Right. You know, so, you, you bought very much the do up,
2: right? Very much the do up, yeah. I mean, even the piles weren't level or stumps, as we call them in my hometown. Mm. But um, that was just what you did because that's what you could afford, you know, and people were handy, I suppose. It, There wasn't any reluctance to knuckle down and do a bit of work to fix your home up, but I'm not sure on the lending criteria for that these days, but you bought what you could just to get into your home on the understanding that you were buying a home and you intended to live in it for forever basically as long as it took.
1: Yeah, and I I guess – some of the recent legislation, Jordan, thinking about new builds, would that be an option for first time home buyers to consider? Uh, because, Paul, very much w- we were of the area, right? You, yes. you bought a do up and you grafted and added value and generated capital from that. That's right. but, but I think it's a slightly different scenario because of legislation now.
0: Yeah, the new builds are gold at the moment. So um, they're a lot easier to get finance on. Uh, most of the lenders have uh, different criteria for a brand new property than what they do for an existing property. The grants can be more. Some of the banks are also offering a special interest rate, a lower interest rate if it's a brand new property. Um, So there are a lot of benefits in in a brand new property if you can find one that is. There's not a lot of them going around at the moment.
1: (laughs) No, that's right. For both of you, what is one myth, and we can talk urban, residential, lifestyle myth here, that you'd like to bust or a home truth you'd like our listeners to take away? i got one. Let's hear it.
0: You don't always have to get a building report. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So generally uh, a lot of people think that the bank require a building report. But generally, they only ask for it if it's written into the uh, sale and purchase agreement. That's of course if it's not built in the leaky home era. So anything 1990 to 2004, I think it is. That's a direct fixed clad. That, that's going to need a, a building report every time. But if it's um, any other property outside that in decent condition, and you haven't got a building report, that that's fine. I mean, it's up to you.
1: Well, oh, that's great advice because obviously there's an additional expense incurred for first time home buyers that. They could do without.
0: Yeah, well, I'm not saying don't get one mm. <laughs> by all means, but you know, um, it's not a requirement of the banks so. here.
1: Oh, that's great. And what about you, Paul?
2: Well, I'll probably cop a bit of criticism for this being in the real estate industry, and people might think I'm biased. But the biggest urban myth is the like the general sadness when the thousand square metre sections get cut up, and everyone seems to go oh, it's a shame, where will the kids play? There's no backyards and all that sort of thing. But if you think it on the other side, instead of there being one home that one person can own, there's now four homes that four people can own and plus they're new, double glazing, the proper heating.
1: Healthy homes.
2: Healthy homes and all that. And when it comes down to it, kids aren't run around backyards much anymore, unfortunately, but that's just the truth of it.
1: So, Paul, thinking about it, there is a lot of media attention around the variables preventing people from getting on the property ladder and you know it feels a bit like doom and gloom, but when we look at local stats, we've got at the moment over a thousand properties on the market in Hamilton, compared to about four hundred for the same time period last year. So, when people say should I wait to buy or wait for changes, what, what would you say to that? What would your advice be?
2: I think it comes down a lot to whether you actually want to buy a home that you want to live in, and whether that home suits your what you want out of life. I mean. There is that saying, but there's no such thing as timing the real estate market. It's just time in. If you hold onto a house long enough, anecdotally, they go up in value over time. And um, you know, if you're not uh, what we call a flipper who's trying to buy a house and chuck in a new kitchen and sell it and make a bit of money, now is a very good time because there's very little competition. On average, we're seeing one person per open home at the moment. Something the general market's probably not seeing that we do is, the amount of houses that are getting listed then coming off the market and being put in the rental pool. So not everyone is selling their house for a cut price amount. People still are, and the median has come down a little bit, although over the last two months it's actually gone up again in Hamilton, is that a lot of people that are selling are selling because they've already got somewhere else to go, like into retirement or, and you know, and they paid $40,000 for their house 40 years ago, so whatever they sell it for today is a profit for them anyway, so... I would not hold out for the end of the year or for prices drop 30 40% because you'd probably find they most likely won't. From our rental department statistics, they're saying 35% of people who are renting in Hamilton now are moving here from out of town. Wow. And they generally would have bought a home, but they're all waiting 12 months to see if the prices drop. So what's going to happen in 12 months? All their leases will come up and they'll all want to buy a house at the same time and then they'll be in competition. And they'll Right put the prices up. On top of that, I read an article the other day that 80,000 people were given residence visas and are now allowed to buy a house in New Zealand and um, 40,000 have been processed. So- That is crazy. The competition will come back and it'll probably come back sooner than than people realise, especially if and Jordan can probably help out on this, if the interest rates stabilise.
1: Yeah. And so as I referred to earlier, Jordan, there are a lot of variables. What do you think people should do? Should they wait or-
0: I always just tell my clients, um, you know, when you find the right house, just jump at it. Don't try and make do, don't buy something that's not quite the right fit, you know, but if you do find something, don't let what's going on outside with the market, trying to predict what's going to happen because um, nine times out of 10, you'll go one way and the opposite will happen. So I think like when, you know, the GFC hit the the medium house price dropped by like 5 or 6%, you know, within 18 months it was back up by 10%, you know. So the only people that actually lost at their point were the people that sold at the bottom. So, I mean, property in New Zealand, you know, if you can hold it long enough, it's only going to go one way.
1: It's interesting, isn't it, because information can either inform or distract, but I guess we've got to be careful about the source of our information and it could not potentially always come from the media. So it's important to talk to experts like yourself and Paul. Mm. So, you know, we talked about this at the start of our podcast, which was we would share two truths and a lie. Perhaps if we could return to that now as we come to the close of our podcast. And Jordan, do share with us your two truths and a lie.
0: Well, Megan, I've actually uh, mixed it up a little bit. I've done two lies in and in a truth. <laughs> so I'll start with the truth. Uh, it is possible to purchase a, a first home without any savings at all. So you can do a fully gifted deposit.
1: So uh, this and is the and bank of mum and dad, right? Bank of
0: mum and dad. Yep, yep, my father there or auntie and uncle or, or whoever, whoever. So can their granddad, part. yep. Yep, yep, whoever you got there. Um, so that's that's fine. I mean, a lot of people come to us and they don't have any savings, and and um, you know they're under the impression that they need some sort of savings there to to get the loan, but right. it's not always a requirement. So you know, it's good to talk to an advisor about it. The first uh, lie there, you can withdraw your KiwiSaver a second time if you're in the same position as a first-home buyer. So uh, that's a lie. You can't. You can only withdraw your KiwiSaver to purchase a house once. If you have owned a property in the past, you can still be eligible for the first-home loan and the first-home grant, um, but you can't withdraw your KiwiSaver twice.
1: Well, that's that's great advice. Thank you for that. Uh, A lot of people don't think would realise that.
0: Hmm. So, yeah, just watch out for that one. And the second lie, um, you have to repay all of your debt before you apply for a first home loan. So that's not correct either. You're, you are okay to have uh, some debts here if you've got car loans or you know credit cards, um, as long as you're keeping up with the payments. Most of the lenders look at the expense from it how much is costing on a monthly basis, and also another one, student loans. So, you know, regardless of whether your student loan's $10,000 or $100,000, it actually doesn't make any difference in in, in
2: your application.
1: Fantastic advice. Thanks so much for that, Jordan. And Paul, your two truths and a lie. What are you going to bust for us?
2: If you engage a real estate agent to help you buy a home, you don't pay them anything. The vendor pays them if the home sells. If you make an offer, you're not committed to buying that home. If you have conditions to protect you from buying a home you can't afford, that's your finance clause. Yeah. Yep. Building clause, that'll protect you from buying a home that's structurally unsound. A limb will protect you from buying a home that has unconsented works on it. Our purchase solicitor's clause will help you, protect you from buying a home that your solicitor might find there's some other issue with.
1: Great. Thank you so much for that. That's really good advice. And
2: the truth, other truth, was that most real estate agents are honest. Find one you like and trust communicate with them and work with them.
1: And obviously, especially Lodge. Yes. Yeah. So look, we'll wrap it up there for today. Thanks so much to you, Jordan, and to you, Paul, for your wisdom today. And to our listeners, please keep your eyes and ears peeled for our next episode. Before closing, I just want to mention a couple of things. We are going to have another First time home buyers Head Start seminar later this year. The first one was an absolute sellout. You can see more details on our website, www.lodge.co.nz. In fact you can probably just about register for that. And you can also read Jordan's ebook from Total Mortgage on his website. We'll put the link up on the podcast information. Thanks so much for joining us and may all your real estate dreams come true.
0: for joining us on the Lodge Real Estate Home Truths podcast. Learn more about today's topic and our panel guests by visiting our website lodge.co.nz.